This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. Here's your host, Corey Tusick. This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tusick. I have the two guys that run the account. WTF happened in 1971. Um, that would be Ben Prentice and Colin. Uh, what's your? I'll get, I could go with Heavily Armed Clown or yeah, Colin. That's, that's what people know me as, Heavily Armed Clown. Okay, okay. So we'll go with Heavily Armed Clown. <laughs> um, but uh, thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. So I wanted to. I guess the first question would be: um, if anyone hasn't seen their website go to wtf happened in 1971.com and your mind will be blown um and you'll go down that rabbit hole because if you've been down the bitcoin rabbit hole um seeing what has happened to our our currency is a whole nother rabbit hole um they work together but also separate um so let me ask you guys first wtf happened in 1971 <laughs> yeah what did happen in 1971 man um, well, we went off the gold standard. <laughs> um, so basically went from having any kind of tie to the, 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 the supply of our money being, um, sound and being, you know, restrained in some way to, to going to Neil Kashkari, uh, where we can print infinite money, um, digitally, uh, with zero effort put in. And what happened is lots of inflation. And mm-hmm. the very short story is inflation changes prices and screws everything up. And, uh, it's it's horrible for society and i think the data kind of speaks for itself yeah and i was you know i've told people this a lot lately that i honestly thought that if fort knox was ever raided and they found out that we couldn't back our gold you know like if you couldn't exchange your dollar for a gold uh bar that the country would fall apart <laughs> like i i just thought i thought until a handful of years ago you know the they don't really go over that in history class. They don't, they kind of gloss over it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. Like we're, we're legitimately off of it. Everybody knows it's a public fact. So, so when we don't went off the gold standard, what, what made you guys, you know, like what got you down the rabbit hole of, you know, exploring all the things that have happened. Cause if you go on your website, you can see there's tons of different, you know, statistics as far as, you know, like violence, all that kind of stuff that have taken off since 1971. We're just nerds. <laughs> we like to we like to dig into things. And I, I think it was it was kind of tangential. I mean, like a, a lot of the discoveries is sort of us just like poking through economic data and saying, wow, look at this or thinking, hey, I wonder if there's any trends in X, Y and Z. Um, and a lot of times, what do you know? There actually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so the <laughs> what really struck me too was like it was like divorce rates and i mean what else you know you guys know it inside and out so like what what everything seemed pretty steady house price housing prices everything were you guys kind of surprised the more you discovered more you found stuff and the more you uncovered the correlation yeah definitely um i i think it it started when i was doing research on you know monetary history and you just you learn about of course 1971 and, uh, you know, you go on the Nixon shock website and Bretton Woods website, you can actually see a few of the charts that we have there. And that's, that's actually how I fell into this rabbit hole. Um, and cause you know, if you think about it, um, you expect inflation to, to kind of, um, be, 
you know, to be an anomalous thing after there's no tie to the money. That makes sense. Um, and we saw that in the data. And then, you know, I think I, I think I saw, what was the, um, yeah, it was the trade deficit. Um, I think that was one of the ones where I started to see, I was like, wow, there's like a marked shift, this inflection point um, in the data where this is interesting. Like, did this, is the reason that we're you know, not um, exporting any goods anymore. We only import goods. Is that tied to them? And then I learned about the Trippin dilemma and that kind of all made sense as well. And we started looking for more data and we found more and more. And then, um, you know, I think we started the site with, you know, 10 or 15 charts or something like that. And we've since found more ourselves. Uh, we've looked at some things that were like, you know, if we expect a lot of inflation here, um, you know, maybe we'll see something here. And sometimes we'll find that, sometimes we won't. But we also get a lot of people from the community. Shout out to all these guys um, who just send us stuff randomly. And uh, we, put a, we put a lot of it up too. So it, it's kind of a living document. It, it changes, um, you know, we recently updated the, uh, the debt, which is, um, you know, still skyrocketing, right? Mm -hmm. Still kind of spiraling out of control. So every once in a while, <laughs> you know, throw a new chart on there and see how much worse it is, right? <laughs> yeah, just put another 1.9 trillion on. Yeah. I think the other thing is too, like Bitcoin has been such a renaissance in uh, like both a renaissance and a revival in Austrian economic theory. Um, well, not maybe not even theory, but just like um, it, it's produced all of these new incredible thinkers, you know, who it sort of brought them all to one place and they're all collaborating and sharing ideas. And Austrian economics has survived as long as it has, despite its obscurity, because it's fundamentally sound, right? So like, it's, it's one thing to read like Mises or, or Rothbard and come away with, with an understanding of how economics work and what human action is and, you know, what happens when you just expand credit indefinitely or debase the money. Um, but, but it's another thing, you know, like it, one thing that's really lacking in today's academic economics is uh plausible explanations for so many of these trends that we see you know emerging obviously around 1971 um and it was sort of like the puzzle pieces all fit together because certainly many people before us have been able to point back at the end of Bretton Woods and and see lots of um bad economic consequences that happened because of that but it it was in our in our sort of new understanding of because Bitcoin's sort of like the first Austrian economics experiment in real time, right? I mean, like we're watching data emerge from this thing over and over day after day, and it's just turning into a black hole that's sucking all the capital of the world into it. Um, I, I think that that kind of gave us like this fresh perspective to say, hey, you know, like we understand this. Most people don't understand this. How do we show people that the emperor has no clothes? And just that just started with the idea of putting data in one place where we could easily reference back to it and say, well, I mean, I understand that you, you think our theories are dumb and you don't like Bitcoin, but how do you explain this? Like, what, what do you like? How do you make that not look stupid? Really? <laughs> you know, like, like how do they, how, how could they get away? Yeah. I mean, you know, how can Janet Yellen um, explain away her economic policies and, and not be looked at as crazy? Yeah. So many things are just objectively worse. Um, that it's it to me is undeniable right and like you can pick put you know you can pick apart maybe some of them aren't directly related to the end of the gold standard but i i think you know if you start thinking second third order effects of massive inflation people not being able to store their wealth um, massively distorted prices 
um, and um, malinvestment um, is even those ones that seem a little bit more um, hard to believe or, or maybe not as, as directly connected, you can start to see um, some of the reasons why they, they might actually, you know, because if, if you look at what happens in a society where hyperinflation is happening, where it's just absolutely out of control, um, you can see society start to break down. And, you know, I often say that um, what's happening in more developed nations, nations with more what we call stable currencies, um, that you can see that kind of process happening in slow motion, right? We're, we're doing the same thing they are, but it's just not as bad. Um, and, and I think objectively, those things are worse, right? Um, at least the stuff that we have on the website. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the symptoms, they're, they're implicit too, right? Like the divorce one is a good example because there are accompanying factors that um, impact that. Like, so for example, in 1971, um, they passed what was called no-fault divorce law which basically just made it a lot easier for people to get divorced um, and kind of just agree to go their separate ways. Um, whereas before that was much more difficult just based on the way the legal system worked. So obviously there wasn't anybody sitting around and saying, honey, uh, Nixon just ended the convertibility of the dollar into gold. I'm filing for a divorce. Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't like an explicit, you know, conditional outcome. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, it was an implicit thing. Like go look at, What's the number one cause for divorce in the West? It's money, money right? Money. It's always going to be money. It's always been money. That's just what people argue about. So like if you create a system that debases people's savings and makes them poorer over periods of time, you know, unless they're savvy investors, well, yeah. What are people going to argue about more? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a thing that's become, you know, so glaringly obvious to me as I've gotten into this over the last year plus is that like the, I feel like the middle class is like, su like suffocating, you right. know, well, but this finally, you know, we, I think, I think that we've explained that if you, if you ask Bitcoiners about what the stock market, um, what its purpose is today, it's not to allocate capital efficiently. It's to store your wealth. Right. Like literally, I mean, even if you ask a financial advisor this, it's not just Bitcoiners, right? Everybody knows you store your wealth in the stock market or in, in the bond market. Jeez. Uh, don't store your wealth in the bond market, folks, at least not in 2021. Um, but so when we're doing that, right, um, we have what, what we've done is we've we've made it so that folks that have access to assets and, and I mean this physically, like, you know, some people in the developing world don't have access to stock market, financial markets and, um, and aren't able to hold real estate. But, but again, like even in the developed world, you're talking about the hauling out of the middle class. Um, the, I, I think that what we've seen is a stratification of wealth, right? Um, that, you know, it's, it's, it's not that wealth inequality itself is bad. I'm not arguing for, you know, equality of outcome. I'm, I'm ar arguing for equality of opportunity and folks that can't hold 80% of their wealth in illiquid volatile assets like stocks and real estate. Um, they need liquid cash. You know, they live paycheck to paycheck. Um, those folks don't get to benefit from asset inflation while jointly um, the very wealthy can hold large percentages of their wealth in assets. And they only need a small amount of cash um, to work with and they can liquidate and they, you know, they have, they have people for that. Right. Um, and so it, it goes up, up the tier, right. The, the richer you are, the easier this is to allocate your wealth to these assets that inflate because we inflate the money supply and, and jointly 
the poorer you are, the less you benefit from this stuff, the less easy it is to escape from uh, inflation. So we are hollowing out the middle class, we're making the poor poor, and we're making it easy for the rich to um, not only preserve their wealth, but probably come out on top, right? Uh, I just think the system is completely broken. And the other side of that too is the, you know, people think about the Cantillion effect and they talk about uh, the, like the seniorage premium that the, that the central banks enjoy. Um, but, but beyond that too, like the further you are up the food chain, the more access you have to artificially cheap credit, right? I mean, like I can't take out 0% interest loans. Like granted, you know, I don't run multi-million dollar businesses or, you know, have access to, to all of this capital that I can borrow against. But uh, that, that gives people an unfair advantage because in a, in a free capital market, like you, you wouldn't see those types of things happening. Um, capital would be priced much more reasonably than it is right now. Right now, you know, the cost of capital, if you're one of these people, you know, at, at the tip of this pyramid Ponzi, um, you know, you're, you're basically borrowing money for free and that's backed by the lender of last resort. And it grants you access to these inflating assets at a disproportionate rate to the working class. Uh, and, th and that just further compounds the wealth inequality that Ben is talking about. Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of see how it can change, how quickly it can happen. Like, um, you know, and, and I mean, a lot of the people that are the wealthiest in the world right now um, are really just have been playing the game, you know? Um, and as soon as that game changes, it's going to be really interesting. It's funny because I'm like, now I was like starting to look at some different things in my life and I'm like, Oh, you know, like properties and stuff like that. But all of a sudden I'm like, if I go in and start investing in real estate, that's whenever we're going to get off the fiat standard and, and uh, everything is going to come crashing down, you know? So right. like in 30 years, you know, if I buy vacation properties, I don't know if they're going to appreciate in dollars in 30 years now, because hopefully we're going towards a more sound money system so that, so anyways, my point in bringing that up is that you have to see now that instead of just buying stuff and sitting on it, like it really is a focus on growing things and providing value to people. You know, um, you can't just buy, you know, buy real estate. What blew my mind is that, uh, I think it was Jeff Booth said to me, he said, well, um, you know, why does the house go up in value? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, they always say the car depreciates when you drive it off the lot. Why does the house get better? You know, like, why does, why does the building get better? Um, so I think it's gonna be interesting and I hope that we keep going in that direction. Um, so to, for people that don't know much about, it, I mean, could you guys walk back like, you know, just a little bit of like the cliff notes of the history of like what happened with, Bretton Woods and and how it accelerated to 1971 and getting off the gold standard. Right. Well, I mean, you kind of have to go back before that, right? Before mm -hmm. before all of that, before even 1913, um, we were on this system where essentially commercial banks um, they they held gold in reserve and they um, issued paper money. And, and it wasn't all commercial banks. Some of it was state banks. There was a lot of experimentation with these paper money certificates um, and pure paper money that wasn't redeemable. Uh, we kind of went back and forth. We had a lot of issues. Um, really, those issues um, to understand where those come from is is actually extremely important um, because the Keynesians will tell you that gold failed too um, because gold did fail. But they'll tell you it for a different reason. That's how because they couldn't print more money, um, and they they needed to print money because um, there always ended up being more paper than there was gold. So they constantly were in this like debt, you know, these these kind of uh, roller coaster debt cycles 
um, from paper money inflation. Um, so that is because the gold ends up in vaults and we have to use the paper in the first place because gold is a terrible medium of exchange when you're trying to do it you know, quickly, when you're trying to do um, large amounts of gold are very expensive and very hard to transport, all these things. Um, so eventually in 1913, they came up with this idea to, uh, and people have been trying to do this for a long time. Colin will tell you more about the history here. Um, but they, they were like, oh, well, let's just put everything under one umbrella, right? The, the Federal Reserve and um, basically end this, this whole problem of not being able to um, print money and, 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 and keep everything under control because, um, because there, there were failures, right? Um, so 1913 is when you establish the Federal Reserve. Then you have the Great Depression um, because of all the paper money inflation that happened after they established the Federal Reserve, right? Uh, and then people were like, hey, we want our gold instead of this paper. And they were like, oh, well, we don't have enough gold. Um, so they made more bank holidays. Um, they did national bank holidays. They could stop all the banks now uh, because it was all a national system. And, and that leads you into 1933 and the New Deal in Executive Order 6102 where they confiscated all the gold. And they said, you know what? Here's the problem. You pesky people keep taking the gold back out of the bank. Why don't you just stop doing that? And then we won't have a problem. Um, and then there was uh, more inflation in the 40s. And eventually they made the Bretton Woods system. Um, and the Bretton Woods system was a system where the dollar is at the center um, uh, of, of the monetary system of the world and every other currency would exchange for dollars and dollars could be exchanged for gold. But that was only intranation at this point. Um, it was only like France could redeem and then London re could redeem. And then France figured that game out that they were putting more paper out than they had gold. So they started trying to take the gold. And in 1971, basically um, after lots of inflation happened, they said, uh, we, we can't pay that debt either, right? These are all soft defaults on debt. Um, and and that when Nixon did that, he um, he basically just he forced everybody onto a fiat standard uh, because we, we I mean nobody nobody really went back to gold there so everybody's now on fiat and uh, now everything's worse. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so so really quickly spirals if you look at the history, like you said, 1913 they established a central bank. And from what I under, or the Federal Reserve, and this blew my mind when somebody told me I had no idea that the Federal Reserve is a private company. Yeah, it's 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 a quasi-public institution. It, it is technically private, but they're like ostensibly um, beholden to uh, Congress, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there there are shareholders, and uh, it is technically private. It's it's a very strange kind of governmental organization. And like it sounds crazy. What is it? It's the is it Jekyll Island? that's where it was established or something like, it sounds like something out of a movie where you'd be like, Oh, let's go to Jekyll Island and, you know, come up with this plan to enrich ourselves and, you know, make everyone else slaves to us. Yeah. There, um, there's actually a really great book written specifically on that topic. And it's called the creature from Jekyll Island. And it's, it's a fantastic book, especially if you're just trying to get your toes wet in like economics and you don't really want to read like a dense history book because it doesn't read like like a dense textbook it reads more like um like a mystery novel but it's it's totally verifiable and it's definitely non-fiction that's crazy <laughs> it's nuts um well, i should make the first movie about that because that uh that'll probably i could get it funded with bitcoiners i wouldn't be able to get it funded with people that, that rely on fiat and the, the federal reserve um and central banks but um Sorry, and you guys like this. The, all this stuff is like blowing my mind. Like I'm coming from like a non-economics background, like, and 
and it's just the more I keep learning about this, I'm like, oh my God, this is such a crock. Like this is such a scheme. Um, so in 19, so in the 1940s, basically, what was it? Everybody shipped their gold to us. Is that what happened to Britain over World War II? Like all of the gold was being held here. And no. then after World War II? Mm-mm. Not not necessarily. So what Bretton Woods essentially was, was an agreement um, for a universal gold standard. However, what, what all that really meant was that the dollar was going to be pegged to gold and all of the rest of the fiat currencies um, in, exist, in, in the agreement, in the Bretton Woods agreement, would be pegged to the dollar. So there wasn't necessarily like everybody said, okay, we're going to turn our gold into you and you're going to issue dollars based on how much gold is in the vaults. It was more so the the United States government said, we, we will issue the dollars based on our gold reserves and you will issue um, your respective currencies relative to our dollar. Um, and and that's actually what got him in trouble, right? Because because of the way Bretton Woods was set up and, you know, there, there's all kinds of um, pretty deep economic consequences from making yourself a reserve currency like that. Um, think something like the Triffin dilemma where, you know, the, the demand for your currency as a reserve currency in most cases forces you to run a trade deficit, which is why, you know, you see America went from a net exporter to a net importer in 1971 and has that trend has accelerated ever since. Um, because they were trying to fix the price of gold, I think it was at $35 an ounce. There was a lot of um, manipulation in the gold markets through uh, or an organization called the London Gold Pool. Uh, and, and that's actually, if you if you ever look at the data, like we have a chart of this on our website that shows the price of gold relative to the amount of gold held by the U.S. Treasury um, during the time period that we were under Bretton Woods. And you'll actually see during that time period, the amount of gold in reserve goes down despite the fact that the dollars in circulation goes up, um, which obviously means that they were print, not just printing more money you know, then they had gold in reserves, but they were also losing gold in their London gold exchange, um, trying to keep the price of gold fixed at $35 an ounce. So prices obviously cannot be sent set by central authorities because those central authorities don't have the accurate information to accurately price it. So the markets will always take advantage of those types of situations. And um, really, it's like Ben said, like 1971 was essentially a default on that promise to repay every dollar with an ounce of gold or every $35 with an ounce of gold or whatever it was. So, so then we've seen at the beginning of the tradition where if, if you're a a human being who defaults on a loan, you go into financial ruin, but if you're a government agency and default on a loan or, or a big bank, then you just get a pass. Well, that that's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly like that, that, that is actually the key problem. And that's what this all, like you can trace all of this back to, um, like, like Ben was talking about the the gold paper receipts, you know, in the banking system, like before the creation of the Federal Reserve and how they had all of these financial crises and, and people will point to that and say, oh, look, gold filled his money. And, and again, that is absolutely true, uh, but not, not for the reasons that the pundits like to point at. Um, the, you know, the ultimate problem was that the government was spending more money, you know, than it had and it was running up deficits and that was creating inflationary booms. Uh, because they were forcing the banks under the free banking system to hold this government debt and to continue to buy this government debt. Um, and when things started to get a little rocky and people wanted to go pull their gold out of the banks, you know, that, that caused these 
crazy liquidation cycles um, that ultimately would force the government to step in and do what was called suspend the redemption of specie. And all that means is just that people were not allowed to go pull their gold out of the banks until the government had time, you know, to um, do whatever they needed to do to make everybody whole again so that life could go back to normal. And, and it created like these ever greater exacerbating cycles of inflationary booms and deflationary busts. And we're still living through that today. And that's why you saw the M1 increase. You know, what was it? It's like some insane amount, like go look at the M1 chart in 2020 and it just literally goes straight up. It's absolutely insane. Um, and, and funny too, like this paper money thing, it's not new. Like they, they tried this back in um, the colonial days of early America and it failed horribly. Every single time they tried to do it, I actually have a quote from a colonial legislator. I think it was in Massachusetts, but he said, uh, do you think gentlemen that I will consent to load my constituents with taxes when we can send our printer and get a wagon load of money, one choir of which would pay for the whole? And I mean, you, you still hear those arguments in Congress today. Like you hear legislators standing up and saying like, why are we going to make life harder on people when we can just, you know, we can pay for it however we want. Like that's what the MMTers basically say is that you can print money indefinitely with no consequence, but there's historical precedent for this. Like this has been going on for a long time. And it's, and it's failed every time. Horribly, horribly. Mm -hmm. Like it, it always ends badly. So where do you think we are in the in the life cycle of our current fiat system? <laughs> well, well, we're Bitcoiners, um, so yeah. obviously uh, we think that that system is going away. Um, as far as when that happens, it's anybody's guess. I mean, uh, you know, you can't really predict human action, um, as as Colin always well puts it. Um, but you know, the, the dollar itself as a reserve currency has kind of um, wore out its welcome. You know, these things tend to last 80 to 100 years. And the dollar is basically at the end of that, if you, if you do the math out. Um, and the reserve currency will probably shift as it has done in, in history, um, because eventually all the other countries get together and they're like, you know what? We don't really, uh, we don't really like this U.S. dollar anymore at the center, just like they did. And, and it's not, it's not really a decision so much that, you know, they're actually saying, hey, let's go do, use something else. It's that, um, you know, uh, slowly people de-dollarize, right? And, and they kind of move to the next um, reserve currency. And, and, and Bitcoin is not big enough to do that yet. So that's why it's really fascinating because, um, you know, I, I do think kind of the dollar is at the end of its life. Uh, Russia is probably sick of um, the U.S. dollar hegemony and China and, and many other countries. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, it's possible that this stuff happens quickly, that gradually, then then suddenly. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it, it's possible that it doesn't. I just don't see something else taking the place of the U.S. dollar. Um, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a really good series on macro voices, even though Eric Townsend doesn't understand Bitcoin. Um, love you, Eric Townsend over there. <laughs> uh, but he has a series called the U.S. Dollar Endgame that kind of talks about some of this stuff. Um, they just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Colin, you want to add to that? Um, I, I don't, I don't know that I, I really have much to add. I mean, I, I agree with you on that one. Um, so now to switch it up and guess, um, and, uh, and go to Bitcoin, um, specifically, I'm curious as to how you guys 
both got into Bitcoin? You know, what what led you into this world of cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin? Um, well, I mean, I knew about Bitcoin for since 2012, 2013, when it first appeared on Slashdot, somewhere around there. And I looked at it briefly. I, I didn't, you know, I maybe I don't even remember if I read the white paper or not. If I just read excerpts and I didn't really understand what it was. I mean, nobody really understood what it was back then. Um, and I was like, oh, that, that, that's interesting, but it probably never worked. Right. And then it was still around in 2013, 2014. Uh, and I thought, you know, I saw Silk Road and stuff, but I, I just, I, I never really ended up getting into it until 2017 when there was the massive um, price run. And I, I just, I had, you know, I had to know what, what this thing was and why it kept coming back and kept getting bigger. And I fell down the Austrian economics rabbit hole. And, and, and that's, um, that kind of leads into to Colin because I, you know, Austrian economics, Bitcoin podcast, I eventually um, found the Bitcoin echo chamber, reached out to him and he got me on the show. And how'd you get into it, Colin? Right. So for me, like it was a little bit different because I had already, I, I, I had already kind of discovered Austrian economics before I found Bitcoin. Um, like I read Ron, or I read the creature from Jekyll Island first, I think. And then I read, Ron Paul's in the Fed and Ron Paul's on the Fed turned me on to um, F.A. Hayek, which, which he wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom. And I read all those books along time, alongside um, trying to learn how to trade penny stocks, which was something that I was doing as like a hobby and, and doing fairly successfully enough to the point where I thought maybe I could turn it into like a replacement revenue stream. Uh, and, it, and it was ultimately speculation that brought me into Bitcoin because I had, you know, like Ben, I had heard about Bitcoin early on, just like on Reddit, you know, people talking about the price and talking about things going on. Uh, and I, I didn't understand it. And all I remember was looking at the price and saying, this thing just keeps going up. Um, I need to get some of it. And in learning more about it and beginning to understand how it worked, um, you know, you, you kind of go through a, a period of time, like when you first discover Bitcoin, where you're like, oh, wow, Bitcoin's really cool. It's really amazing. And then you kind of go, wow. And then like, look at all this other stuff. And this other stuff's really amazing. And then you have to kind of burn your hand on that stove um, and come back to Bitcoin, at least hopefully, you know, if, if you're doing your homework, that's the process that you'll go through. If you're actually taking the time to try to understand these things like you should be. Uh, you'll, you'll come back to Bitcoin and ultimately realize that it is the, the opportunity to disrupt, you know, the, the underlying problem, which is centralized control of money issuance. Um, and so for me, Bitcoin sort of was like this missing puzzle piece that I was like, oh, wow, this is it. Um, and then from there, it, it just snowballed and it, it really threw a lot of fuel on my fire to just become um, what I would consider more fluent in economic, you know, economics and, and in writings and in history and in the philosophy of these things. And that kind of led me to where we are. Yeah. It's funny how it, um, how it <laughs> works your way, works you through this rabbit hole and gets you into a position. I don't know if you guys have seen this in your own lives, but like, you know, started off this journey and like a little over a year ago, I mean, I heard about it a long time ago and God, I wish I would have put money in then, but, um, uh, you know, right. It was right when COVID hit that I got in and now 
it's got me to the point where like I was just on the phone with a real estate agent earlier talking about buying like a 25 acre property and like okay like we could get solar panels out there and there's a creek that runs through we can get hydroelectric power and like all of a sudden I'm like whoa like where am I one year later just from going down this this rabbit hole but I think it leads people to discover that everyone has that natural desire to be self-sovereign yeah um it really you know you, you said earlier about the, the kind of the conspiracies and stuff that that cause our, our our monetary system to be the way it is today where you know obviously it has all these issues that we've been describing for the last you know hour or whatever um for me uh, I, I think that it's really just the result of the technologies that we have available, right? And uh, that's kind of a, a safe day. And you know, he talks about that in the Bitcoin standard, where you know um, the the realities of the technology that's available at any given time um, are are what define what what can be money, right? And we never had anything as good as Bitcoin. And we we are ardent uh, advocates of the stance that that gold did fail us, right? And that we didn't really have, you know, a paper fail us too, obviously. Um, we, we never really had a good money, right? Uh, until we had this sly roundabout way to take it out of the uh, the government's hands. And, and now that Bitcoin's here, I think the last 10 years and the next five or 10 years is really just the world struggling to come to terms with the realities of the technology that exists today. Um, and they, they do empower people, just like many technologies that came before. Um, they kind of level the playing field and they, they kind of make the system more fair. Um, the, they, they change the, uh, the logic of violence and, and people are, are waking up to that. Um, and it's funny because they're waking up to that for the same reason um, that, that Colin and I did uh, because of number go up technology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the price goes up and we say, hey, I need to get some of that. And then uh, a lot of people go in and eventually learn what it is. And the people that don't, end up getting their hands burned on the stove and probably eventually come back to, to Bitcoin, right? So it's it's really just the reality of the incentives, uh, the reality of the technology uh, that exists that, that really helps shape our society in, in so many ways. That's, that's a really good point, Ben, because really, like people, like if you look historically, people have a hard time rationalizing and adapting to massive paradigm shifts. Uh, and the only two that I can really think of that I can point a finger at are the industrial revolution and the information age revolution. Um, like the industrial revolution, for example, you know, you go and look up the Luddites, you know, you hear that term Luddites and it means somebody who is afraid of or against the advancement of technology. But if you go and look up the origin of that term, it actually originates from a group of um, skilled uh, textile weavers who were essentially uh, obsoleted by mechanical looms and they just lost their minds. I mean, they went absolutely nuts and s tried to burn down factories and smash mechanized looms and, you know, literally kill people over what they thought was the destruction of their livelihood. And, and, and it wasn't so much that they, they hated technology so much as they hated the way that it disrupted the only way of life that they knew and they lacked the foresight and understanding that, you know, this new advancement in technology would, even though it might interrupt their ability to make an income in the short term, you know, should they be able to adapt to this new paradigm, uh, it would actually make their life a whole lot better because it would just make things much cheaper for them to obtain and 
that's really all technology does is that it makes the the ends it makes our means less costly you know for our ends and at the end of the day that's all human action is about is about trying to obtain our ends so if we can obtain our ends you know with with less expenditure of energy or less expenditure of capital then everybody is more richly uh, rewarded in society because of those innovations. And then, you, you know, you could also look at the information age, right? There were a lot of people who brushed off the internet. Um, somebody What's posted, that A with the circle around it? Right. Yeah. Somebody posted just the other day, like an article from like, from like the year 2000, it wasn't even like the 1980s or the 1990s. It was from the year 2000 and it essentially said the internet has failed and like people are turning their backs on it and they're uninterested and more and more people every day are canceling their internet service and this whole experiment failed, right? And that just goes to show that people have a really hard time wrapping their minds around these types of um, revolutionary paradigm shifts that happen you know, with the emergence of new technologies. And that's really all that Bitcoin is. And all like you see these people on Twitter, these celebrities and these fiat academics and politicians, and they're just all pining over just all of the waste and because they don't understand the problem that this solves and the way that it's going to redirect the trajectory of society into the future. And they don't know that it's inevitable and they don't know that it can't be stopped. And it's going to be really hard for them to adjust um, to this new paradigm that's emerging i mean you're you're going to see people just absolutely losing their minds and and th this is probably the most world-shaking thing that's ever happened in my opinion agreed yeah i agree and i i have to admit that um i i'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the term schadenfreude the um uh you know taking pleasure in other people's uh misery but uh there is a little bit of that that goes on um with with seeing these people that just flat out miss what's going on i mean it's one of my it's always been not that i want other people to be miserable but like i'm a big sports fan like pittsburgh sports everything so like i love it whenever like my teams are on the road and like let's say in hockey like the penguins when they score a goal and like they're in philadelphia or whatever and you can see like the fan like behind the the net like going like ah you know like i, I love seeing that like the competitive side and um and I've found that like this is kind of like a competitive game, fiat versus um, crypto, and everybody that's in you know Bitcoin specifically, and everyone that's in Bitcoin is just kind of sitting there like they've got the we've got the lead, we're we're taking the air out of the football, you know, we're just running, churning out first downs, and and they're sitting on the other sideline, you know, scrambling and trying to prove that their system's still going to work. Uh, they have no idea that the game's over. Um, <laughs> And so I'm, I'm curious to see where it's going to go. You guys, um, I would have to imagine you guys have, have you guys read um, the price of tomorrow, Jeff Booth's book? Um, because a lot of what we were just talking about, you know, made me think of, um, you know, the conversation he and I had, and I, I said to him, like, I said, deflation, like, you know, you, like you said, with the textile workers um, burning down factories and everything, if deflation happened, if, if it, if the price of, the materials went down then do you think they would have seen they would have seen the benefits and and people would have stopped resisting or do you think inflation is the biggest the biggest uh you know problem that we we face with technology well here's the thing right like you're not going to be thinking about how the cost of you know garments that you can buy go down 
with the innovation of a mechanized loom, um, if, if you can't even solve your most immediate problems, which is your income, which is how you feed your family and how you put a roof over your head, right? So, and, and that's where people um, end up, that's where, you know, that's where revolutions emerge, like really all throughout history. Like whenever you see these insane revolutions happening, it's because people's lifestyles get so disrupted that they can't feed their kids and that, that they can't, um, you know, live a normal life and, and pursue what makes them happy and what makes them satisfied. Um, and, and that's really what you need to look out for. And that's really like why education is so important is because the more people understand that this is inevitable and that this is coming, you know, I, like, I, I like your analogy, like the sports analogy, the analogy I like to use is that, uh, for anybody who's ever played poker, Bitcoin is sort of like a poker game and, you know, the, the, the Bitcoiners are the like, <laughs> right, exactly. No. And Bitcoiners have had the nuts since like 2010 and they've just been sitting on the hand. Right. And we're just waiting for the river car to come. But we already know we won. And everyone else at the, the table is still playing the game. But we're if you come over to team Bitcoin and like you do the homework and you you really put in the time to understand what's going on here, you'll see it's like, oh, this is inevitable. I know how this hand ends and it doesn't matter what that guy bets or what that guy bets or if that guy folds. I'm already going to win. And, and if you've ever played poker and you've ever been sitting on the nuts, you know what it feels like to just know that the hand is won. It is inevitable. And there's a 100% chance that you're going to, you're going to win. And you're just watching everyone else pretend like they might beat you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just for a little perspective, I mean, the, the, the people that are, are, I mean, you know, obviously some, some people that are in power are probably accumulating Bitcoin in in private and mm -hmm. in public they're um, you know, no, this is, you know, They're the worst thing. It. You have to ban it, right? Right. Because they want to accumulate it cheaply. Um, but it, it, it's it's certainly possible that there's a, a number of people that are, are are working really, it's working really well for them, this current system. And uh, they, they don't they want that party that, to end. No, they don't want that party to end. And they think that Bitcoin thing is weird. And they know that the system works well for them. Uh, and they, they don't know about that whole Bitcoin thing. And I think those people are going to resist it longer and they're not going to benefit as much from um, being able to be an early hold hodler um, to help bootstrack the liquidity of Bitcoin and, um, and, and have it grow and, and become a money, right? It, it, it kind of has to become a money before it, it can work as a money. And, and, and that process is weird for people too, to see that we've never really seen that happen. We have no precedent for for something being monetized in real time. So it, mm. it, the, the people that take the time to understand this technology are going to benefit. It, that's, it's that simple. Um, it, and that's really dangerous too, because it's politically popular right now to point a finger at capitalism. And you see a lot of people who are really, really wealthy and really intelligent um, try and curry favor to this narrative. And I don't know if it's a lack of understanding of economics or if it's disingenuous and like i said they're just trying to curry political favor like I, I i kind of get the feeling that a lot of these extremely successful people um who point a finger at capitalism more than anything are just trying to say hey you know it wasn't me like don't mm. don't chop my head off when things start to fall apart like i know capitalism is broken but like when i hear guys like chamath say that um i i just i just think he knows better and I really think that it's it's disingenuous and dishonest for him to say that, even though I know it, if, if he's as smart as I think he is, then I think he's saying that to one, pander to people to try to get them to pay attention and to two, to try to curry political favor so that they don't come for his head, you know, when, when things start to get a little bit weird. Um, but that's a really dangerous narrative. All of these people that point a finger at 
capitalism and say capitalism was the problem. Look, this is what has this is what it's created. And the real truth, like you don't even have to dig very deep to understand that that's completely false, right? That we haven't had truly free markets and certainly not free capital markets and certainly not um, a free money in a very, very long time. And the problems that we have today are created by government intervention in these natural voluntary systems that emerge uh, in, in what is profitable voluntary human cooperation. And that's how people get more wealthy. That's what makes your life better is the ability to trade with anybody and for them to be able to make a living trying to satisfy other people's needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it is interesting. You say, you know, with everybody being afraid of like, oh, like come chop my head off. Like I, I thought we were really, really dangerously close to that in the U.S. last summer. Like I thought, I don't know what your guys' thoughts were on everything, but I, you know, everybody was looking at it as a, as a social, um, put like political movement, you know, all the riots and the violence. But I mean, to me, it money played such a big part in that. You know, what I mean, like you have the certain matches that light the that light the tinderbox, um, and and set things ablaze. Um, do you guys see that as something that's happening in the U.S.? A lot of unrest based on if we keep going down this path, people in the middle class and lower class are going to be like, "Look, screw this! I can't. I'm not. I'm not going to broke just so that uh, you know a couple people up top can sit pretty." Absolutely. I mean, I think you're seeing that not just in the U.S. but around the world too, right? Um, where where society isn't working, people protest, right? When when everything's going well, um, then people don't like get up in the streets, right? And, and obviously, you know, in 2020, uh, locking a whole bunch of people in their homes and giving them UBI, um, it gives them plenty of free time to actually express how they really feel, um, which is uh, that they are really frustrated with how the system is working, right? Um, I think that's definitely the unifying thing is that the system is not working for people, right? And they, they don't know where to point the finger. You know, as Colin said, that they're pointing the finger at capitalism when really they should be pointing it at monetary socialism because that's what we really have. Um, and as long as there's legal tender laws around, uh, then, you know, the, we're not going to have a free market for money and, and thus we don't have capitalism. So, um, yeah. If you look back at the modern history and you look for the most damaging, destructive, dramatic cultural revolutions, they're almost always on the backs of severe economic malaise, right? Like look at the French Revolution, look at the Bolshevik Revolution, look at the Chinese Communist Revolution. All of those people were just totally destitute um, during the time periods that those cultural revolutions happened. And there was a whole lot of politics that emerged in all of those circumstances um, that really had nothing to do with people's underlying problems and, and involved a lot of finger pointing. Um, Frederick Bastiat actually talks about this. He was a, he was a philosopher and economist that wrote about, you know, around the time that French France was going through its, its cultural revolution. And he, he wrote a lot about these specific issues. And, and he basically said uh, in his book, the law that, when you have a system in society that basically legalizes plunder and, and legalizes plunder for the few, right? Because that's the only way that it's sustainable is if you have limited suffrage, meaning that there's only a certain number of people in the society who are allowed to decide how things work, then you can maintain limited plunder, right? But as um, people start to grow more and more uh, discontent with how things are going because they're having 
their wealth stolen from them. And they're being preached to by the institutions who are moralizing this legalized plunder. Eventually, you're going to transition to a system with universal suffrage, right, which is what we've seen in the West, right, where we've seen um, this huge push, you know, to get everybody involved in like this um, democratize everything ideology that that pushes heavily for things that don't make sense. They're ultimately Marxist tenets, things like social justice and uh, social equality. And, you know, those things are nonsense if you dig into, you know, understanding that a free and fair society starts everyone on equal footing, but doesn't guarantee an equal outcome. Um, ultimately, what you end up with in a situation like that, where when you have a situation where plunder is legalized by the legislature and moralized by the institution, and you let universal suffrage emerge, well, total plunder is inevitable. People will come up with whatever justification they need. They'll point a finger at whoever they have to. Uh, and this, this is fueled by all kinds of hateful, destructive, horribly evil ideologies like Marxism, you know, like like um, communism in China, like, you know, what we're seeing in America, what we saw last summer. Um, people just pointing the fingers at whoever they can to try and coerce the legislature into granting them their share of the plunder. And then we end up in a society where everyone is stealing everything from everyone around them all the time. And, and it's really just a game of trying to work your way up the political pyramid to guarantee enough of the share of the plunder for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, an incredibly chilling way to put it, but <laughs> that's, you know, unfortunately I think the, the, the path that we're kind of on now, I, I mean, I think, and I hope that Bitcoin is the thing that can save us from that. Um, you know, do you guys see, I mean, because right now we're watching, you know, Bitcoin, you know, basically be a vacuum to, to all fiat. Um, you know, what do you guys see? I mean, today it's hovering around 57. I don't know if it's broke 58 today. I haven't checked much, but, um, you know, we're about to hit some more all-time highs, I'm sure, in the, in the very near future. Um, but everybody's talking about it going on another cycle, like, oh, it's going to be, you know, it might go up to 150, it might go up to 288, you know, and then it's going to drop significantly, just like last time. Do you guys see that as something that eventually that just stops? Do you think Bitcoin just keeps at this point sucking everything up and, and kind of saving us from ourselves? A lot of that depends on kind of what the Federal Reserve does. And right now that they're, um, they're in Bitcoin acceleration mode, uh, which is, I mean, hey, that's that's their prerogative, I suppose. Um, but you know, for me, I, I'm not selling my Bitcoin for dollars. I I I want to get more Bitcoin. So the the price of the Bitcoin for me is actually it's kind of like an indicator to me of how how the world is is coming to understand Bitcoin. Um, and uh, I think as it gets bigger, um, the volatility declines because it it it, it it acquires more monetary inertia, um, more um, more price inertia, more more liquidity, um, and it, it becomes more widespread. It becomes more um, more valuable because there's more network effect to it, and and I think it levels off after you know. I mean, it it Bitcoin goes up forever, right? Because you know, like like Matt O'Dell always says, Bitcoin is designed to pump forever, um, because we we can make more things in society um, each year than we could before, or we can make better things in society um, with, the, with the same amount of uh, input time or input uh, costs. So 
the Bitcoin can still grow in its purchasing power uh, over time. But now it's it, the, the big rises that we see are because it's being monetized. It's, it, it's acquiring value. It, it's a necessary volatility to get to global money status. So I, I you know, I, obviously I watch the price like everybody else, but I also, I like watching um, Bitcoin as a percentage of gold. And you can see that on Clark Moody's dashboard or Bitbo.io. Um, where you can see it's it's slowly kind of just like it's it's what it's close to ten percent now. I remember when watching it, I was like, oh, it broke one percent, and it's gonna break ten percent, and it'll break fifty percent, and it'll break hundred percent, and then gold will be completely obsolete basically at that point. Because then people are like, if it can get as big as gold, then why are we holding this like shiny rock anymore? And then and then we kind of set our sights Don't on. Don't tell Peter you know, shift that. <laughs> well, well, his his son can can come hang out with us whenever we want. Either that or it's a whole it's a whole marketing campaign every. Every single time his name comes up, I'm like, damn, we're giving him more attention, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think um, that people need to be really careful here because, you know, if you look back over Bitcoin's history, um, you see these price cycles emerge around the halving. Um, I like to say, and, and this is not the most popular view, but I like to say that with each halving that comes and goes, the next halving becomes less significant. Uh, and that's simply just a matter of, you know, the, the quantitative basis on which each having impacts um, the, the stock to flow and, and not, not the stock to flow, because I guess each one is kind of exponential, but the way each having impacts the total supply, right? Because we're getting to the point here soon where each having is a far less significant total percentage of the remaining subsidy, the, the Bitcoin that still needs to be issued. Um, you know, within 10 years, um, the amount of new Bitcoin created every 10 minutes is insignificant. Um, so I think that we're potentially approaching an inflection point here where these four-year cycles around the having, um, they're, they're just simply less significant. And, and I would caution anybody who thinks that they're smart enough to look back at these decade, this decade long trend and say, Oh, well, I'm going to clearly, I know the future and I'm going to trade around this thing because in my opinion, we're still at the bottom of this S curve. And this has yet to really fully pick up steam to accelerate um, at the rate that I think it will. And I, I strongly disagree with all of these people um, people like Raul Paul who say that this thing's going to like top out at like 10 trillion and then just kind of go sideways for a while as people, you know, I, I just think it's ridiculous. It's an exponential technology and it's going to exponentially change the world and it's going to have exponential adoption at some point. And when that point comes, you don't want to be caught in between a trade because you thought you were smart and you thought you were going to play the cycle. Um, it, it, it truly is an exponential technology and we're at the bottom of the S curve. I really do believe that. Um, I, I think you, there, you know, there will be days in the future when you wake up and you, you can't believe that Bitcoin doubled while you were asleep. I really do think that that's going to happen uh, because the, the, the availability of the actual commodity like Bitcoin on the blockchain is so small right now. It is, it is tiny and it really won't take that much money in terms of a percentage basis of um, you know, global markets to come into this thing 
until there's just none to buy. And yeah, some people will try to quote unquote take profits, but there's going to come a, a turning point for this thing when people realize that like you don't take profits in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the profit. Bitcoin is the goal. And they're going to want to accumulate as much of it as they can. And they're not going to sell it because what are you going to sell it for? Yeah, maybe you'll sell a little bit of it to fund your lifestyle, to buy goods and services, but you're not going to just trade in and out of it into dollars. Like that's just insane. And, and people are waking up to that and they're going to realize it and it's going to make predictions like people like Ralph Paul make look very silly. Um, and, and as far as what you asked about the transition, I, I think a lot of times it's easy for us to get caught up in economics and, and on the hype um, around like the price movements and, and the wealth transfer and all those types of things. But what Bitcoin really does that's so significant for people is it makes violence, direct violence against people um, to reappropriate their property significantly less profitable. And, and like Ben said earlier, that's sort of just a function of technology. And that's a thing, you know, look at the wall, right? What does a wall do? What purpose does it serve? Well, it serves to make the profitability of that roving band of barbarians lower right? It, it makes it more expensive in terms of human capital or monetary capital for them to come and raid your little village. Uh, and that, that's really all that Bitcoin is, is a massive, massive new technological innovation in the profitability of direct violence to conduct theft against a person. Yeah, that's, um, that's one of the things that's, um, I'm most hopeful about, you know, because, um, I mean, who was it that said you fix the, fix the money, you fix the world? Um, you know, and if you look back through history, I mean, how much, how many wars and everything, I mean, what it's all, how much of it is based on money or how much is money, you know, I mean, money is the root of all evil, they say. So, um, you know, if you fix it and make it fair, then do you guys see it as being something that, you know, how does that function in the future? I just want to correct you that, that what you just said, the money is the root of all evil. That's actually a Bible verse. And the actual, this is like one of the most mis commonly misquoted things I hear. The actual verse says that the love of money is the root uh, of all yeah. evil. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. That's in my, my father is a deacon. So he, if he watches this is going to be so disappointed in me because he's going to be <laughs> like, I wasn't paying attention whenever he was talking. Um, but, but if you think about it, right. In an inflationary environment, you have to secure a stream of money to survive, or you have to secure these assets, right? Um, because your money doesn't hold your wealth, it, it evaporates over time. And, and thus, we have become addicted to these streams of money instead of um, to our lives. So that's, it, that's like our love of money that we, we need to keep getting it all the time, instead of being able to acquire some, hold on to it, uh, and, 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 you know, maybe live your life, right? Um, it, it's, 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 it's broken um, the way that it works. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I guess you spend less um, as your money gains value. As you start spending less, um, you don't have to go like hoard stuff like, oh, my precious, you know, like don't touch my stuff, you know, and, and creating that conflict amongst humans. No, that's absolutely right. Because money is just a tool. It's a tool that humans use to preserve their value into the future and to um, defer immediate consumption, right? It's a tool that we say, we say, you know, and this happened who, who knows exactly how the idea of money emerged, but it solves a very real problem, which is one, you know, the coincidence of wants. Hey, you have apples. I have a cow. I want a few of your apples, but you can't have my whole cow. How do we do this? 
right? So it, money is like an intermediary between that exchange without having to barter over these non-fungible assets, right? And then two, it allows you to defer your consumption, your immediate consumption, so that you can save for the future. Those are the two primary problems that money solve. And when you're in a situation where, like Ben says, your money is constantly being debased and you can't save for the future, well, you know, the, no wonder so many people in our society today are obsessed with money because their livelihood in the future depends on getting as much of it as they can today as possible. Mm-hmm. That's, and you guys are hitting some good points. And uh, I'm really glad uh, this is because Bitcoin made simple is really for I'm like trying to aim at like people that have been around, but also like people that are brand new to this. And uh, and uh, and I'm like a year ahead of that, but of this stuff still blowing my mind that, um, you know, we could essentially get to a more, you know, it's a tool that when money, I guess Bitcoin to me seems like a tool that money was always trying to be, um, but was never able to completely be as successful as, as Bitcoin can be. Um, so when we go into, we were talking earlier about when we go into, you know, uh, how people think it'll level off eventually, um, you know, that's something that not a lot of people talk about is they talk about flipping to the Bitcoin standard if it becomes the, you know, the the reserve currency of the world. What actually happens then? Because, the, like, you know, your Bitcoin could be worth, one Bitcoin could be worth $100 trillion, but it doesn't matter because it, it's still going to buy the same amount of land and it's going to buy the same amount of food. Um, it just doesn't, the, the, the price is going to be different. So when people look at the price, um do you see that happening in like the near future? I mean, nobody can predict the future, but what do you guys think is going to happen on the horizon here? I don't think that fiat money has to go to zero and Bitcoin has to go to infinite price in US dollars for uh, hyper-Bitcoinization to happen. Um, and just just as a, as a, I just wanted to build off something else you said you know, about money. Um, that, that money is really just the tool that allows humans to collaborate. And when you kind of fix the money, um, you, you, you'll fix our collaboration and, and thus make our society more sound. And we'll have you know, better investment, we'll have better prices. Um, and the, we'll, we'll stop thinking about the price of Bitcoin and we'll start pricing things in Bitcoin. Uh, we'll use Bitcoin as the unit of account. Uh, this is the other function of money is being a unit of account. Um, it allows us to calculate economically what one thing is, is worth versus another thing. You, you price it in the money. Um, so in order to get to that, that hyper-Bitcoinization scenario, you have to stop pricing things in dollars and start thinking about that thing I'm about to buy, even though I'm spending US dollars on it right now, because I'm, I don't know, I have 100% of my wealth in Bitcoin. Um, how much would it cost me in Bitcoin now? How much would it cost me in Bitcoin in five years, right? Um, start using Bitcoin as your unit of account um, and, and then you'll, you'll start lowering your time preference for sure. I'm going to take a slightly different stance than Ben here because I don't, I don't actually like this term or this idea of Bitcoin as a reserve currency um, because to me, it doesn't really make any sense, right? Bitcoin is a, the proto-currency. It is the next evolution of money. Um, and I, yeah, it, can fiat currencies maybe still exist in 20 years? Potentially, like in the sense, right? I mean, look back 20, 30 years, 
most everybody did the majority of their communications via, you know, analog mail, right? It was delivered to your house. And that was how you had most of your correspondence. And to some degree, right, it's still used a little bit today for some of that. But the vast majority of all of our communication has gone digital. And every time I check my mailbox, I don't know about you guys, pretty much the only thing in there is junk. I mean, occasionally, maybe I'll get like a letter from the IRS or something stupid like that. But like, 99% of the mail that I get today is just junk. It's just spam. It's worthless. And in a lot of ways, like I, I completely ignore it. Sometimes I, it's so inconsequential. Sometimes I completely forget to even check the mailbox. And that's just because the technology was displaced by something orders of magnitude better. Um, And, and I really think in terms of money, like, and, and in terms of the way that it has the potential to disrupt the nation state, you know, under the current paradigm, um, the, the sovereign state, I think, is is sort of going away. And because and we see these these nation states all over the world that are just hyper leveraged um, and, and relying totally and wholly on their ability to deficit spend by expanding their currency base that that can't continue. That trajectory is on an inevitable path to complete and total failure. And there's just this little escape hatch hanging out over here saying, hey, you know, come on over here. You know, there's a lifeboat. It's great. And one day it's a little raft and the next day it's an inflatable rigid hull boat. And then the next day it's a yacht and suddenly everyone wants to be on the yacht. And they're like, wow, I can't believe that we were on that sinking ship. Like that didn't make any sense. Why would we ever go back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I like that idea of it being something that's just, because really Bitcoin doesn't care what dollars do. You know, it, it's like it, it started whenever, you know, Satoshi started running it and it's, it's literally just going to go, it's not stopping. Um, so I do, I do kind of see that point where it is going to probably, it, that's a really good analogy actually in 20 years of like, what are dollars going to be like? It's going to be like checking your mailbox, like, Irrelevant. like, yeah. And like you said, I mean, that happens to us all the time, you know, like we, we forget to check the mailbox. Um, I mean, even everything that's like important down to like our kids' school stuff, like everything, there's nothing to look in the mail for. The only thing that I missed in the mail was, a, like you said, a letter from the IRS. I was like, I completely missed it. And I got a second notice. I was like, oh, shit. It was nothing important, like nothing crazy bad. But it was just like, oh, if I had missed a couple of these and kept throwing my mail away, um, that would have been bad. But, uh, you know, it's a government, so they're not going to... Um, turn into anything uh anything that's gonna work better um so one of the things i've been asking people is uh you know we've talked a lot in the big picture what bitcoin is but for new people you know that are maybe starting to grasp this like how would you guys explain it to them so they could so they could then explain it to others you know because at this point, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast and you've listened to other podcasts, even if you're brand new in this space, you've mentioned it once or twice to your friends and they're going to start asking you over the next year. So how would you guys say the best way to explain it to people in layman's terms? Ben, what was it that Murad said about digital gold flying through space or something like that? Yeah. And it's actually a Satoshi quote, right? Like if you, um, Oh, you, oh, you're talking about the, oh yeah. Bitcoin is like pieces of digital gold flying through digital space on an unstoppable, uncensorable PayPal or something like that. <laughs> That's right. 
that's that's pretty close to it um and it, and it's hard because you you try to compare something to gold and and that's kind of irrelevant to young people these days too it's it's really hard to get bitcoin into a, a soundbite or something like that you know colin and i have done a lot of work uh, a lot of research a lot of reading a lot of discussion um in order to be able to ex explain in an hour what is only a very small part of the picture of why bitcoin's important to folks um I or think, why it's why it's not going to fail like why it works right you know? Like, yeah, and get into FUD, and there's there's so many different things that sometimes you'll have a conversation with somebody, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, but it's going to boil the oceans, right?" And it's, then you have to go down that roll rabbit hole. So uh, it, you know, it's tough. But if if you really think about it, um, Bitcoin for people in the United States and and Europe and and some developed countries, um, you know, we're we're very privileged. Um, in relatively speaking to folks in other countries and Venezuela and Sudan and I, I, mm -hmm. I, Argentina and, uh, and so many other places where the, those systems are completely broken. And, and those people, you don't have to explain Bitcoin to, you just have to show them, here's how you use it. And they say, great, thank you. Right. Um, if people in the Western world, we don't really need it as much. Uh, we do need it. Um, they just need it a lot more. Um, and uh, eventually everyone will realize that they needed it as well. But um, yeah, it's 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 really hard to explain Bitcoin to somebody. So I I would encourage people um, if they're trying to do that and have that conversation is to be as as well read as possible, understand all those different nuances that can come up, um, so that when they do have the conversation with people and they they throw out one of these things that they think is a gotcha, like oh yeah, but it's deflationary, so that means economy economy is going to come grinding to a halt. That you can say something like, uh, are you saying that you don't like when prices go down? Like, like they do in the electronics industry. Everybody loves that, right? And then just like, boom, it'll, it'll kind of stop people in their tracks. You have to know what you're talking about in order to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious. So uh, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm uh, doing a documentary. Um, that's what I do in my day job is make movies and stuff like that. Um, and making a documentary called Searching for Satoshi. But I give the disclaimer that I don't actually want to dox Satoshi um, because I think it's better that we don't know who Satoshi is. But do you guys have any thoughts? I mean, that's kind of the fun thing to like ponder about. Like, you know, who is, who is this person or group of people that came up with this thing? Because, I mean, the more initially I was like, wow, it's somebody that came up with this system that, that could be, you know, replace money and like, it could be really good store of value. And now I'm like, well, it, like, you, know, you talk about violence, it might solve so many problems in the world. Um, so there's like the theory, you know, it's like, it, you know, it could be sent from God, it could be sent from the future, who knows? Um, I also like the theory of like, I have some friends that I'm pretty sure back in our heyday, like, college days like going to the bars they could have gotten like absolutely blitzed and gone home and written the white paper and just passed out on their keyboard and woke up the next day and like what what i did what um you know and uh so I, i'm i'm fascinated by who satoshi is and uh who do you guys think i mean do you do you have any hunch on who the group is who the person is I think it was Ben Bernanke because he realized in 2008 that the system was so broke. He's like, you know what? We need something better, right? And he's just so sick of trying to have to explain himself over and over again. He's like, all right, I got to fix this. Um, I, you know, like there was a pretty interesting article that came out on this not too long ago, um, pointing to a lot of evidence that it might have been some cypherpunk who took his own life uh, a few years ago 
And the the article was really compelling, but like if you go back and comb through this guy's Twitter, like he, he tweeted some stuff about Bitcoin early on that sort of made me think that it probably wasn't him. Um, and and I don't like, you know, like it, you know, it's also possible that it was like Hal Finney. Um, mm-hmm. But but I I don't want to point a finger at anybody who's who's still alive, and and I really kind of take offense to it when people do do that. Like I, I'm not a fan of, um, you know, people just saying with total certainty like on twitter you know in open chat to like nick zabo like hey thanks satoshi like it's just it's just dumb like right because first of all i don't i think that that's wrong and and then second of all if it is true like i don't think nick appreciates that very much like because no, it's obvious a, satoshi a reason went, <laughs> right like it's obvious satoshi went to great lengths um to, to conceal his identity. And actually, um, Peter Todd has a lot of really interesting thoughts on this. Um, he, d- he did a podcast with Citizen Bitcoin Brady and um, Bitcoin Audible Guy Swan, um, where they kind of like talked about the history of Bitcoin. And they, they really got into like, you know, who Satoshi was and like what his intentions were. And I, the way that I like to think about this is like, regardless of who the actual person was or group of people behind Bitcoin, I genuinely believe that the entity of Satoshi, like Satoshi, the the identity is dead. Like whoever it was, either, you know, they have passed on like as an individual or, you know, the, the entity has, has passed on. And, and I will be bold enough to say that I don't think we'll ever see any of Satoshi's coins move. And if we do, I think that it might be indicative of like a security flaw. And I, I, I would go so far as to say that like, no, like, and, and the other thing that Peter Todd said too, is that Satoshi never cryptographically signed anything. He never used a PGP key to establish his identity. And that's a common practice in um, cypherpunk and, and pseudo-anonymous, you know, online activity is that if you want to sort of build a reputation for yourself, you're going to do it with PGP because it's the only way that you can, uh, it, it, without question, verify your identity at some point later in the future and connect it with previous work that you've done. Satoshi obviously knew his way around, you know, private and public key cryptography and yet specifically chose to never identify himself via PGP. So we, we have good reason to believe that the Satoshi is dead and even better to reason to believe that we'll never know with certainty who it was because we could never verify it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if they wanted to be found, they, it would have happened by now as my, you know, just even like on the simplest terms, it's like, <laughs> it's gotten so many headlines that if you haven't figured it out now, it's probably never going to happen. Um, you know, and then you have the Craig Wrights of the world that, um, you know, trying i mean is he just i don't even give him any time a day like is he blatantly trying to say he's satoshi yeah he's a scammer yeah yeah he's a joke a known scammer and a fraud um but yeah i mean i I agree with you i think and there's like you said with um that's kind of you know spoiler alert but with the the documentary the kind of to walk people down the line and be interesting you know if you guys are if we're if you happen to be in miami i'm gonna try and go um, for the conference, but at some point maybe interview you guys for the documentary um, because, you know, I, I think it's the alluring narrative, you know, people that don't know anything about Bitcoin. It's like, Ooh, who is this anonymous creator? And then you got to walk them through the story and get to the point where it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And you're never going to find out. 
And that's a great thing. That's a good thing, right? The mm -hmm. greatest thing that Satoshi ever did was disappear um, because that made Bitcoin's immaculate conception. It made the dragon headless. It made it leaderless and it made it truly decentralized. And, and I, I don't think you could ever replicate that again. Um, mm -hmm. and it's a, uh, well, and, you know, to give people, you know, go back to, uh, to how valuable this is and, and what people should be doing, you know, uh, I'll go with, with your, your poker example, Colin was, was great. Um, and if you play poker, you know, that. funny story. So first time I ever went to a casino, I played poker. I always tell people I grew up playing poker, but my family, it was just like at, at Easter, like we played poker. We Like I knew about Texas Hold'em whenever I was like 10. Um, but it was like one of the eight games we played, you know, it was just, we were playing cards all the time. My parents, my grandparents played penny poker together. You know, it's, I guess for better or worse ingrained in our blood. And, um, and so I go to a casino for the first time I sit down, I'm the dealer chip, I'm the dealer card, or I have the dealer chip in front of me and I didn't want to wait for it to get around. And I was just so eager. So I called the blind and I had Jack four offsuit. Um, and I was like, I wouldn't have. I would have never called the blind. I would have folded no matter what. Um, and the, the, <laughs> the hand came out three fours on the flop. And I just was like, Oh my God. Like, and I'm like, as long as, as long as there's not a chance for a flush, you know, like a, a straight flush, I was like, I got it. I got the nuts here. You know And I'm? I'm just sitting there and, and it's kind of like how you explained. I literally checked down and like let everybody else just bet around me. And I just smiled like, oh, hey, you still want to play? That's great. Um, so that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about holding your Bitcoin, you know, like they want to print more money. Go ahead. That, throw it in. That's really good because, it, you know, anybody who's played a lot of poker um, that's ever flopped nuts and then to their delight checked down and watched two other guys at the table get into a um you know like a pissing contest and in some cases like shove each other all in when you're the one with the nuts and you haven't really even been in on the action like that is the best feeling in the whole like in in of i've done you know like i've done a lot of things in my life like and <laughs> there are very few things that come close to flapping the nuts in a game of poker and then watching two other guys on the table push each other all in um because you know you you know you're gonna win. You have all the power, and like you're just sitting there watching this happen, and just like limping their calls or calling calling their bets, just you know limping along until they push each other all in. That is exactly what we're watching happen right now in the world of central banking. Central banking is pushing all of their chips to the middle of the table, and the bitcoiners are sitting on the nuts. They have no idea that they're gonna lose. I mean, uh, this this stimulus. I mean, I. I just can't believe that the press pushing this stuff through. And like, to me, it's like, I don't think they should send it, but everybody that gets it, like I've been telling my, my family, I'm like, look, you know, I don't know your personal situation, but if you don't need the money, as soon as it hits your bank account, dump that straight into Bitcoin, like every single cent. It, it, have you guys seen the account that shows if you took your first stimulus check, how much? Um, oh, <laughs> ten thousand dollars now it's, it's insane i know my biggest regret it, everybody should dollar cost average but my biggest regret is not um just going all in because the first time i bought it was like at like seven thousand dollars and and uh and man it would have been so much better if i did but i also in 2013 wanted to put like a thousand bucks on it when it was a hundred dollars a bitcoin 
and I spent that thousand dollars as for an extra three days on our honeymoon. Um, so yeah, but, that is you know, like a hundred. <laughs> dude, like I, you know, I can do that too. We can do that. Oh that. yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But but you would have sold at one hundred and thirty or one hundred and fifty, right? That's a, that's you would have I'm held telling. until you know seventeen thousand and then sold the top. Like you, you, it's just like we didn't understand it back then, right? Yeah. You, you can't you can't go dump all your money in at the first day you heard about Bitcoin because as soon as it drops twenty percent, you'd be like, oh, I'll sell this and sell the bottom, and then you'll buy the top again, right? Like there's there's no winning that game. You have to. You would have thought you were really smart too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've been like, oh my god, look at this! I I'm put a, in a thousand dollars. Amazing investor! Look at me! <laughs> I, I made seven hundred dollars. I made seven hundred dollars off of these fools selling this internet money. Um, yeah, I just like to tease my wife and say that you know, ten Bitcoin right now would be like five hundred eighty thousand dollars or whatever. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I, I saw somebody tweet. They said if you had bought, you know, ten years ago, if you had bought thousand dollars in bitcoin you'd have 980 dollars because you would have sold it when it lost 20 bucks yeah it's, it's um, true i mean there there are some people they're few and far between but they're out there and they exist and they understood bitcoin very early on um and and really you know to to have been one of those people that actually understood like the implications of bitcoin um, early on, like before, you know, we started to really pro proliferate all these ideas and, and get together and, and discuss it amongst each other and, and really kind of like hammer this out at the intellectual level amongst each other. Like the people who really understood it early on and accumulated and have held have been rewarded uh, appropriately. And, mm -hmm. and they're out there and they exist. Like there are people who have more Bitcoin than you could ever imagine. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing when you think about the fact that they will be richer than any nation within the next 10 years. <laughs> and they have an anonymous pleb account with 500 followers on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, also, I mean, uh, if you guys have a second to, I wanted to get into just one other thing. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And so this isn't me like at all trying to shill my own stuff, but it's something that's like been really inspiring to me with the Bitcoin community. The more I've got into it is, um, you know, so I got into the movie industry. I worked on like big productions in the as like a as the low man on the totem pole, getting coffee for people. And now, like, I started my own companies, and I've I have a handful of companies right now that I've had for like six years. And I've been watching Hollywood kind of go through this like the quasi renaissance of like, you know, we're getting in, we're going to streaming, but it's not getting really better. Like, you know, you're we're getting back to a cable package already. Like you, if you want to watch your stuff, you have to have like four different streaming platforms. And, um, and so I've been waiting in the water and trying to find the inefficiencies in Hollywood. And, and it's really like, nobody wants to jump in. Everybody wants the status quo to stay the same. And as I've been getting into the Bitcoin world, I've become so much more inspired because I feel like Bitcoiners are going to be the people that help me you know, find something that works better for, you know, people that, you know, the, the artists making money off of royalties and everything like that. Um, could you guys speak to that a little bit? Because from my perspective, it seems as though, like, if I'm trying to float ideas out there in the, in the movie world, everybody's looking at a way to take advantage of it. And they're trying to find the way that they're going to make money. And Bitcoiners, to me, seem to be like, 
in it for the good of everybody. Like there are the people that are trying to get rich, but am I wrong in reading that? Well, I think I would, I would be careful. Um, I always try to be caution people when they characterize Bitcoiners, right? Because what is a Bitcoiner? It's just somebody that uses Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yes, while the early days of this new technology have attracted a certain type of individual um, prone to a specific value set, uh, specific ideologies, um, perhaps exposure to certain types of you know, literature, like it's no secret, a lot of early Bitcoiners, you know, they're uh, ardent Austrian economists. They generally are very, very intelligent. Like some of the smartest people I've ever met are certainly Bitcoiners. Uh, But that doesn't mean that that Bitcoiners, like as a definition, are are, are all the same, right? Because at the end of the day, Bitcoin is for everyone, right? So, um, but I do agree with you. Like, I do think there's something there with like this, core group of people that have sort of been attracted to this thing in its early days. And, and certainly like, I think right now, I think the emergence of Michael Saylor kind of marks uh, a transitionary period in Bitcoin where it's not just the nerds, the, the nerds like Ben and I on the internet anymore, who like to read thick textbooks and spend hours on podcasts talking about our thoughts. Um, it, it's, it, it, the bigger players are coming in and, 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 the masses follow the bigger players, right? At the end of the day, like pretty soon, everybody's going to want in on this thing. And, um, but again, totally agree with you about like the, this group of people that it seems to have attracted early on. Um, it's just some pretty incredible people. And I, I think it's wise to network and try to build a reputation for yourself and, and maybe see what we can accomplish together. Yeah. It, you guys think if Michael Saylor doesn't come in, does Elon buy? Um, <laughs> I know that's a really Wait, tough question. Like a, that's a huge Michael question. Saylor doesn't if Michael Saylor in? didn't, if Michael oh, strategy did. didn't buy. Uh, yeah. I mean, I definitely think it was part of a catalyst. Eventually somebody had to, to kind of move the Overton window. And I think that's what, you know, Michael Saylor did. Um, and I, I think you'll just kind of continue to see that happen. It's, it's getting, it's getting more and more de-risked, you know, you go Michael Saylor and you go up to the next, you get to Tesla and then, you know, you see put Apple putting it on their balance sheet, then, uh, you know, I think you really start to see a turning of the tides. Then, you know, those are, you know, Amazon, these types of huge businesses. Uh, you've already seen um, endowment funds and, and, and hedge funds start to kind of come into it. And, and it just, it, it is a gradually then suddenly thing. You know, it, it has to be, you know, psychologically de-risked before it can be, you know, um, value-wise de-risked, right? It just, mm-hmm. it has to grow bigger before it can grow bigger. It's weird because these, these, these hedge funds that deal with trillions of dollars under management, um, they can't, they can't, they can only dip a toe in the water, right? They mm-hmm. can't put their whole portfolio in it. So it just, it has to happen kind of slowly and surely. I think the social landscape has really changed too. Like, cause when Michael Saylor did what he did, um, came out and just said, like, this is our new treasury reserve asset. All of our excess operating capital, all of our, you know, uh, treasury reserve capital, it's all going into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is our new treasury reserve asset. And going forward, we're going to sweep all of our, you know, excess revenue into Bitcoin. Um, that was a pretty insane thing for a CEO of a publicly traded company to just come out and say and stick to it. Like he has stuck to it. Like I think he just bought another 10 million. At oh yeah. 57,000. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if anybody were to come out and say that today, you're going to look a lot less crazy 
um, you know, socially speaking, like to the rest of the world than Michael Saylor did when he did it. So I, I, I totally agree with Ben that it's moving the Overton window and it's, it's just, it's essentially buying um, intellectual cover for anybody who might've been interested in this thing or is getting interested in this thing to make maybe not as bold of a decision, but certainly to get their toes wet. And we all know what happens with Bitcoin when you get your toes wet um, pretty soon. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty soon you're underwater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I've, I've gone from, you know, being like, Oh, this thing's interesting to like, like I, I don't even see the point of having any other money or anything else. Like I, even with our, even with some, with my companies, I was like at the beginning of the year or going into the end of December, whenever um, Bitcoin was at like 20,000, I was like, I said to my wife, I was like the easiest way for any of our companies to 10 X next year is to put all of our cash in Bitcoin and just sit. Like, I mean, obviously that's not moving the company forward other than like making an insane profit, but like, like it's, that's where my mind is. And and it's crazy to me that, you know, somebody like Michael Saylor was able to do that so early. So, you know, a lot of people are holding him up as like, you know, with, uh, you know, like he's kind of become like a cult hero, but I mean, also <laughs> he really put his uh, balls on the line and, and went for it. So um, uh, are you guys going to be down in uh, uh, Miami? I will make it. I, I don't know yet. I might be able to make it. I don't have a ticket. Um, but like, it, it's hard for me to coordinate stuff that far in the future. I think it's what in June, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure yet. I, I'd love to go, but I don't have a ticket yet. And I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. Massive FOMO. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to, but I just found out that our vacation is like butting up against that. Uh, like I've already done so much Bitcoin stuff that my wife doesn't want to hear much more about it, let alone like, <laughs> Oh, Hey, can we reschedule our vacation uh, so that I can go to a, a nerd fest? Right. Um, Cause I'm like, I'm a, I'm a huge nerd. You know what I mean? Like I'm the, like, it's like whether it's star Wars or um, you know, I mean, I could be a nerd about breaking bad, you know, like anything like that. So uh, Bitcoin, it's, it's a, it's a fun rabbit hole. Um, where can people find you guys at on the online? You have your, you know, WTF happened in 1971 uh, Twitter account, but you guys both have personal ones. Yeah, um, I'm I'm at M-R-C-O-O-L-B-P, Mr. Cool BP on Twitter. Um, my DMs are always open. If you ever want to have a conversation, reach out. Uh, we also, um, Colin and I both run the, uh, well, I mean, it's his show, but uh, he I've kind of become an honorary uh, co-host of the show, uh, the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. You can find that at the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Echo Chamber dot com. No, there's no the, just oh, Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Yeah, you're a terrible co-host. <laughs> um, terrible. It's a, it's a, that's why he's the, he's the real co-host. <laughs> now that show is actually kind of on hiatus. So like, yeah, we have a, a library of episodes, but we haven't been making new ones lately um, just because Ben and I are busy with other stuff and podcast comes with a lot of baggage as Ben would tell you. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. very political and <laughs> it's, it's no fun. Um, it's, it's fun to talk. I like, I, we love the talking to people part, but the, the baggage that comes with it is yeah, it's something, but yeah, I, I'm on Twitter at heavily armed C the letter C. Um, I'm the only heavily armed clown as far as I know. So like if you <laughs> see the heavily armed clown, that's me. Uh, and our, obviously our website WTF happened in 1971 um, we had a newsletter that I was doing for a while, WTF 1971, just where we've, we've kind of written like a lot of our thoughts on some of the economic history and stuff. If you want to dive more into that, that'd be a good place to start. Um, 
and again my dms are open too so always happy to chat with people all right well hey ben and colin thanks for coming on i really appreciate it thanks for having us Corey. it was fun thanks Corey. thanks again to ben and colin for joining the show i really appreciate it i, I love the you know hearing more history of wtf has happened since 1971 um, and also, you know, just hearing from them, uh, you know, where they see Bitcoin going and, and kind of the bigger picture. So uh, thanks again for listening. Make sure you guys, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter at Bitcoin Simply. Um, you can also email me if you ever want to ask a question. Uh, it's Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, just subscribe to the show and uh, check out. There'll be more coming. I got a lot of guests lined up, so I hope you guys like it. Thanks again. Bye.